Let's pray together as we open God's Word. Heavenly Father, haste the day when our faith is made sight. Give us eyes to see your grace, to see the truth of the gospel of your Son, that my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. Father, give our hearts new eyes to see the truths of your word. Soften our consciences to hear these words from your scripture, your words given to us, protected and handed down through the ages by your Holy Spirit. That We would not walk away ignoring them and unchanged. Father, help us to see the glories of the cross this morning. We praise you and say it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're back in the book of Romans this week. Romans chapter 6. Just as Chase said, you go to the New Testament. We were in the book of John, the fourth gospel. Two more books. Go through Acts and then to Romans. And we're back in Romans chapter 6 this morning. Just finishing up this little mini-series we've been doing on the glories of the cross looking at the apostolic preaching of the cross. It's really fascinating to me that, that the apostles are writing these books, wrestling with the facts of what Jesus did. And these are their thoughts after the fact. This is, what, this is what they're synthesizing, where the cross meets their lives. And this morning we're talking about what is gospel freedom. We talk about freedom, we sing about freedom... It's election season, everybody's thinking about freedom. What is it to be free as a Christian? And Christians stumble over this all the time. Does freedom mean licentiousness? In other words, does freedom mean that I can just do whatever I want, that sins don't matter anymore, that I can act any way, say anything, wear anything? Or is freedom something that's that's only felt in our spirits, and and we actually should follow the law, we should do these things, we should have a Sabbath, we should eat a certain way, and it's just something we feel in our hearts. What is gospel freedom? Well, Paul this morning is going to give us a picture of freedom that's a little different than what we think. A freedom that enslaves versus a slavery that sets us free. Let me give you a little kind of silly example. Some of you know who know me well, know that I have a very ridiculous taste in movies. If it's normal, I probably don't like it. If it's it's weird, I'll probably get into it. So, I'm a big fan of Monty Python. Yeah, that's right. In fact, my knowledge of Monty Python was influential in my being hired at Oak Park. You can ask Norman Leach about that story. If you don't know, Monty Python is this absurdist British comedy troupe most famously who brought us Monty Python in search of the Holy Grail. And though we know them as British, there's actually one member who was an American. And I say was not because he's dead, but because he's no longer an American. It's not something we think about very often, is it? Terry Gilliam, he's a a film producer, He's, he's made lots of movies you've probably heard of, originally born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, renounced his American citizenship in 2006. And at that time, he did not like the political climate in America. He renounced his citizenship in order to be free of a government he didn't like. Now, 
you can do that. You can renounce your citizenship. But an odd thing happened. With his freedom came a kind of slavery. You see, as, as he's no longer an American citizen, he can't travel to the United States freely. He can only come a few days a year. It's hard for him to make movies in the U.S. anymore. Because as not an American citizen, in fact, as somebody who's revoked his citizenship, he can only come a few weeks a year. It's hard to find jobs. In fact, it's ironic that it's hard for Monty Python, the troop, to come to America because all the British members can travel here more freely than he can. So he got his freedom out of this act of protest to be free of a government he didn't like. He got freedom, but it came with a kind of restraint. It came with a kind of slavery where he is less free now for having done so. That's just an interesting little picture of what Paul is going to talk about this morning. There is a kind of freedom that enslaves. We have to stop thinking about freedom as just being freedom from something and freedom to something. Where does our freedom take us? Where are we going? Because there is a kind of freedom that comes with constraint. So let's read together this morning, starting at Romans chapter 6, verse 15. We're picking up right where we left off last week. Romans chapter 6, verse 15, and bear with me, we're going to read right through to the beginning of chapter 7. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... Now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul speaks this morning about what it means to be free, but it's a complex idea. 
There's a lot in this passage. He repeats himself. He, he takes this argument from an, many angles. So in order to give us something to hang our hats on this morning, a place to put these thoughts, I want to couch this entire passage in two big ideas. In chapter 6, Paul makes this comparison of two ideas. A slavery that leads to freedom versus a freedom that enslaves. Again, so there's two sides of that coin. A slavery that leads to freedom versus a freedom that enslaves. And that's going to be the comparison at the end of chapter 6. And then he makes an illustration at the beginning of chapter 7. Just a picture of what he's trying to say in chapter 6. And that's that illustration of marriage that we just read. A covenant boundary that sets us free. So let's look at this, first at this comparison. A freedom that brings slavery. What is this freedom that brings slavery? It's kind of like that, that little anecdote I told at the beginning of the service. There's a type of freedom that we might seek that brings with it certain things that hold us down. So look at verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? So he's following up on exactly what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about are we to continue sinning because forgiveness is abundant? Should we keep on sinning because we know God will forgive it? And Paul says, absolutely not. You're dead to sin. Your relationship with sin is broken. And this week, Paul is going to take the same thing and say, should you sin because you're free from the law? Just because you're not constrained by a law anymore, does that mean we should go on sinning? That it doesn't matter what we do. That our actions are meaningless because there's no code by which they're measured. And Paul says, no, absolutely not. Last week he says forgiveness shouldn't lead to sin because you're dead to sin and alive to God. This week he says freedom from the law shouldn't lead to unrighteousness because we are bound to God. And he starts with this big idea, kind of a law of nature like gravity. This is the way the world works. Here's the big idea. What you do will enslave you. No, no matter what you do, whether it's good things or bad things, whatever you do, will enslave you. This idea that we are completely free from any kind of influence is a wrong idea. See, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So in 1979, Bob Dylan was right. You're going to have to serve somebody. And it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And I thought about doing my Bob Dylan impression, and I decided that would be a distraction. <laughs> but he's right. You see, we often think in our sin that the decision is between being free from all influence and not having to submit to God or having to submit to God. This is why we think that Christianity is stuffy. Right? That and the fact that for some reason conservative Christians have adopted the jumper as their, as their you know, outfit. But the, the question isn't whether or not we will be free from God, is therefore free from everything. No, it's who are you going to serve? You're, you're going to serve someone. The question is who? See, this is built into the way we were made. See, you, you were created. You didn't make yourself. You didn't come out of nothing. The Bible says that God specifically made you. That means your existence is a derived existence. You got it from someone. 
that in and of itself tells you that you are not independent. You exist for someone, for a purpose. Now that should give us hope, but it also means that we are not autonomous. Our very breath comes from God, so we can't truly be independent of Him. And even more than that, we were made to worship. You realize that? There's, there's no mistake here that Paul uses this language of sacrifice in these verses. Don't present yourself to sin. It's that idea of offering, of, of laying something on the altar. Don't present yourself to sin. You were built to worship. Worship is in our blood, just like all of our other desires. You know, desire, we, we have a desire for intimacy. We have a desire for food. You, were, you have the same built-in desire for worship. You will magnify something. And Paul says, the thing that you magnify will own you. You don't have a choice not to magnify. Because you were made to be a magnifier. And the thing that you magnify, you'll be conformed to. It will, it will start to shape you. It will control you. It will constrain you. That's how we're built. And the basic lie of sin is actually to undercut this. You don't have to turn there with me, but think back to, to Genesis chapter 3. We all know the story of the first sin. But let me read these verses to you again, kind of remind us what, what that first sin was. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes and he tells this lie to the woman. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And then here's the lie. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, there's, there's a lie. You don't need God to interpret the world for you. You could be independent. You could be like Him. You could know good and evil for yourself. Be free of this parental God who insists on telling you the way things are. Now, were Adam and Eve free when they ate from the fruit? In a sense, yes. Adam and Eve did know good and evil from that day forward. They didn't have to trust God to define it for them anymore. But with the freedom of experiencing evil firsthand came the burden of knowing evil. See, Adam and Eve were free in a sense. They didn't have to trust God anymore about what evil was. They could go sow their wild oats, find out for themselves. But the way they would find out about evil, knowing the difference, rather than trusting God, they find out by watching their marriage decay into fighting, watching their work evaporate into sloth and toil, watching their children fight, and ultimately the way they would know evil was watching one of their sons kill the other. So they got independence. They had the opportunity to learn for themselves, and this is what they earned. They were free from trusting God, all right, but you have to ask, what kind of freedom? Was that worth it? Is that really the freedom they were looking for? See, Paul even admits this in this verse. He understands what we wrestle with, what's in our hearts. Verse 20, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. There's a sense in which sinning has a certain freedom. We do feel independent from God. 
I mean, how many of us lost sleep over not coming to church before the Spirit drew our hearts? Nobody, right? Maybe you lost sleep at church because your parents forced you to come, but there was no love lost on the Sunday mornings that you slept in. We weren't worried about sin. We were free from conviction. That was a certain kind of freedom. And I think that's why many people reject the gospel. Maybe that's even you this morning. You know the gospel. You've heard it. But you're smart enough to figure out, hey, you're telling me that if I accept this free gift of the gospel, I have to repent. And repent means submit. i got to agree with God. i got to let him define things. I don't want that yet. i got news for you. At least you're being honest, and I appreciate that. Because that is exactly what the gospel says. It's a free gift, but it's a free gift that comes with a package. See, we have to understand there's, there's this kind of freedom that enslaves. So what is it? Well, in verse 21, he explains how this freedom, that where we try to be free from God, where we try to cast off all restraint, how it leads to more and more slavery. Verse 21 of chapter 6. But what fruit were you getting at the time, from the things of which you are now ashamed, the end of those things is death. He says, you, you have a kind of freedom when you cast off God's restraint. Sure, you're free according to righteousness. You don't have to listen to his rules, but what did it produce? What did it give you? Shame and death. Friends, we know this firsthand. When you look out in the world, when you see somebody who is so drunk that they're degrading to themselves, do you look at that person stumbling around, slurring their words, doing foolish things that they're going to regret tomorrow, and say, boy, that is freedom. Look at that independent soul. No, we look at them and we say, that's foolish. He's controlled. When I hear about somebody who's locked into some addictive sin... Maybe they're watching smut on the internet for three or four hours a night. I don't look at that person and say, wow, that sounds great. You, you sound so free. Now we can, we can see that sin enslaves to shame. It comes with baggage. There's a reason we talk about it that way. That our past lives leave us with loads that we have to unpack and give up. Freedom enslaves. Yeah, sure, you're free according to righteousness, but at what cost? Many of you know this firsthand. When you look back at your life before Christ, the life, the life where you could have any relationship you wanted, and there would be no pastor to come knocking at your door, or the life when you could run at the mouth and curse and gossip, and there would be no Christian brother and sister around to raise an eyebrow. Do you look back at that and say, those were the days. That was great. I would say, all of us look back at that and go, I wish I'd never gone there. I wish I'd never seen that. If it were not for the fact that I've been made new, I would be drenched in shame for what I was. Friends, even if you're living that life now, even if you're rejecting Christ and trying, trying to hide part of your life, trying to justify what you're doing, is that really freedom? 
Christians, this is a warning to us. In verse 16, he says, don't you know that if you present yourselves? He's reminding us that the path to sin always goes that way. We, we can't let it continue in our lives. This is why we cannot continue to sin just because we're free from the law. It will enslave us. It leads to death. Shame and then death. That old phrase still rings true. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin enslaves. It's part of the package deal. And each and every time we go down that path, every time we give in to sin, every time we don't fight for joy and fight for vision like we talked about last week, it gets harder and harder to turn back. And that isn't the way that it has to be. Paul gives us another picture. We've talked about a freedom that enslaves, casting off restraint, and yet brings with it shame. Paul gives us the other side of the coin, a slavery that brings freedom. A slavery that brings freedom. Look at verse 17 of chapter 6. Verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. From the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. A slavery that leads to freedom. You see, we're broken free of those chains, of, of that stuff that drags us down. As Christians, we can unpack the baggage. I would say 90% of the counseling that I have ever done in my pastoral life is helping people lay off the baggage, get rid of the shame of past lives, saying, you are free from that. And the gospel sets us free from shame. But how? By becoming obedient. Now that is an interesting dynamic, isn't it? How do you become free by becoming obedient. Obedient to the standard of teaching. Friends, you see, this is, this is the other half of the equation we have to keep in mind. It's not wrong for us as Christians to hold ourselves to the standard of teaching. What he's talking about there is the apostles' teaching. The standard that all churches have accepted. We have it as the New Testament. They had it from the apostles. It was a group of teaching guarded and protected by the living apostles, now handed down to us in a document. But it's not wrong for us to hold ourselves to that. But I think for us, we are uncomfortable with the idea that obedience brings freedom. Obedience even to the point of slavery. Well, that's a little dicey, isn't it? We like our rights. We like our liberties. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. It's election season. We want to pick our schools and pick our guns and pick our land and pick our everything. We want freedom. That's what we're about. And Paul says, hey, you've been saved. You were made obedient to the point of slavery. Look at verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He says, this is hard to grasp. Why is, why is Paul limiting his, his metaphor here? 
For, you, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. He's guarding this metaphor. Why? Because slavery is something we're not comfortable with. Slavery, even in Paul's day, came with, came with some bad implications, some horrible implications. And Paul is guarding this metaphor because He's not talking about a slavery that destroys dignity. He doesn't have in mind abuse or coercion. But I think what he's saying is, I don't have any better metaphor for just how much God demands of your life. God is not a slave driver. God does not degrade your humanity. God made your humanity. But I don't have any better metaphor for just how much obedience a holy master deserves. See, absolute obedience is demanded both by God's nature and by his command. In his nature, because he's holy. That was the first message in our little series, that God is holy. He is absolute goodness. He cannot couch any sin. So his very nature demands that we obey everything he says. But not only that, his command is that he wants a completely holy people. 1 Peter chapter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. You know, we, we talk about the Old Testament law and how many hundreds of, how many hundreds of restrictions it had. Peter just quintupled that. Be holy in all your conduct. So not just these specific areas. No. Now everything has to be holy to God. Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Appealing to mercy to get us to see holiness. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. See, the Christian life means Righteousness. God requires every motive, every action, everything we do. Be holy in all your conduct. So Christian, make no mistake, you have a master. You have someone who owns you now. And he's not ashamed of giving orders. Not only that... Friends, let's not look, overlook the main point of this passage. It is impossible to be a Christian and continue in sin. Paul talks about this. We have a master and we are presenting ourselves to him in worship, in righteousness. But the flip side of that coin is in sin, we are presenting ourselves to something else. Friends, a pattern of sin is a worship pattern. We present ourselves to sin. When you sin in a high-handed way, what do I mean? When we sin and you know, you know what God has said. You know I shouldn't be here, I shouldn't say this, I shouldn't act this way, I shouldn't give myself over to this emotion. I know I shouldn't do this thing, and you go down that road anyway. You are offering yourself in worship You are saying to sin and to the devil who is behind sin, I adore you. Friends, let's start to take sin seriously. It's false worship. 
It's not just mistakes. It's not just missing the mark. When we are in the midst of high-handed sin, when we continue down paths that God has clearly marked out, don't go there. We are entering the temple of the devil and saying, all right, here I am. You have been set free. You've been given a new life. And the reason you were set free was not so that you could go enslave yourself again. Friends, we have to take this seriously. James says it's an abomination for the same mouth to praise God and slander the brothers. How can a person who's been set free, how can a person who's been made God's son, then blaspheme him? How can you do that with the same lips? How can the same hands that are raised on a Sunday morning commit sin on a Monday? It's false worship. See, if all of this is true, all the gospel that we've been talking about, if God made you, God chose you, he loved you before time began, he sent his son to bear the curse for you, Jesus died for you and freed you, he gave you new life, isn't that motivation enough for worship? And it's one thing to have that be our motivation when we come in here on a Sunday morning to sing, but what when we're going through our week and we offer ourselves at the altar of sin? Has he not earned our worship? And in all of this, Paul makes this distinction. The wages of sin is death. That's that baggage we're talking about. That's what comes with the freedom to go sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So friends, we have to start taking sin seriously. Let's call it what it is. It is worship at the feet of a false god, offering ourselves as, as slaves to that which only leads to death. But instead, Paul gives us this beautiful picture of the gospel. This is what the gospel does in our lives. Here's the question. How is it if we have this slavery that leads to freedom, if that's what I'm arguing for, that sin is a freedom that leads to slavery, and the gospel is a slavery that leads to freedom. The question we have to ask is, how is it that the gospel is freeing? If I'm submitting myself to God, if I'm allowing him to be my master, if I'm going to worship him and him alone, if I'm going to fight all of these urges and desires... How is that freedom? That doesn't sound exciting. That doesn't sound fun. How does that set us free? Well, I think the picture that Paul gives us in the beginning of chapter 7 unlocks this beauty of the gospel that makes all of this possible. The gospel is not submitting again to law. It's not that you move from law to better law. No, we really do get set free. Read with me at the beginning of chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brother, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has raised you from the dead, 
in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So here's this picture. How is it that the gospel sets us free? Well, the picture is, is the sense of marriage, right? We are, in a sense, bound in this life to live one way or another. In other words, marriage is a constraining relationship, isn't it? When you go to the altar, if, if, if you're married, and they used the traditional kind of Book of Common Prayer wedding vows, one of the things that was said in your wedding kind of pronouncement before you gave your vows was forsaking all others, right? That's the most constraining line in all of the marriage vows, that you're literally going to give up everybody else, forsaking all others till death do us part. Marriage is an incredibly constraining relationship. You've just narrowed down half the population to one. So there's definitely constraint in marriage. And not only that, Paul goes on to say it's both legal and spiritual. We're bound to that relationship. You can't go see somebody else. Date night is one person from now on. There are certain ways you have to act towards your spouse and your spouse alone. And to do anything other is to break the law of God. You see, when we were in our sins, we were bound to the law. We couldn't leave even if we wanted to. That was the way by which God was going to judge us. God designed the world, and our role in it was to be tied to the law of God. It was the way of, of salvation. Perfect obedience meant peace with God. We all know that story, but it was not only legal condemnation that we're dealing with here. It's not only that we have this legal problem with the law. An unwanted marriage, if you will, that we're tied to and can't get out of. There's also more to it. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members. That's how Paul defines this relationship. So it's not only legal. No, there's a desire issue here. What's he talking about? Well, Paul talks extensively about our relationship with the law of God in the book of Romans, especially chapter 6, 7, and 8. And even though the law is good, Paul starts to see that the law has this horrible constraining power of stirring up evil in us. Look at chapter 7, verse 8. But sin seized an opportunity through the commandment, producing in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin dies. How is it that sin stirs up rebellion? Well, let me give you a silly little illustration. How many of you here work for a large corporation? Okay, we got a few. You don't have to answer this next question because I do not want to incriminate anybody. Within a large corporation, do you sometimes get rules that make no sense? Yeah. Rules that you just go, who even wrote these? Do they have any idea what we do in our department? <laughs> do they have any idea how this works? Do those rules stir up in you just a little bit of that teenage angst of going, do we really have to do it that way? That is a picture just in little of what the law of God does to us when we don't love God. 
It's an outside constraint that we don't understand. It's coming into our hearts. It's a cage that we're put into. As long as we don't love God, all of his laws are just one more excuse to despise him. See, the law was good. The Mosaic law was all good for Israel. It was meant to create flourishing in their lives. But the more we hate God's authority, the more we hate the law, because the law stirs up that rebellion. Every single law was an opportunity to tell a God that we already didn't like, that we didn't want him in one more area of our lives. Right? The law says, hey, give me 10%. And we say, hey, God, get out of my wallet. The law says, be pure and love only one wife and don't even look at anybody else. And we're like, hey, God, get out of my head. The law says, the law says you have to forgive your debts every seven years. And we say, God, get out of my business. The law, every, every action of the law just stirs up rebellion because we see this is one more area where I don't want God to rule me. And as long as we live in rebellion to God, the law is just a cage, and every bar in the cage is one more reason to despise the cage that we've been put into. See, the law cannot save us because the law doesn't destroy enmity. It only changes behavior. It can constrain evil, but it can never make peace. And friends, we were bound to that like a marriage. No means of escape, no legal regress. You couldn't go to God and argue with him. Remember the book of Job. Job is talking with God. And he says, he says God, if, if I could get into the dock, if we could go to court together and I could get into the dock, I'd have a pretty good case, but I'd never make it to the stand. This is how you judge humanity is basically what he's saying. This is, this is how we're judged. This, this, I couldn't even argue my case. It's that rebelliousness railing against the law. And yet, Paul provides the way of escape. He has this analogy of marriage and widowing. Kind of a morbid example, but it's a basic kind of legal idea. If, if somebody has died in the relationship, the law has no bearing. No bearing at all. You, you can't charge a widow with bigamy when she gets remarried. Who would you bring to the stand? A corpse? No. We all understand this basic idea that the law is broken upon death. Well, what has Paul been talking about for the last two chapters? We've died to sin in the law. Our relationship with it is utterly broken. So just like that marriage, no one charges a widow with bigamy. No one can charge a Christian with the law. It'd be just as silly. Because we aren't to live by God's code anymore. We don't check off a list of things to please God. Don't live your life going down the list. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, and do not go with girls that do. Done. Your list will just get longer and longer. That's not what you're called to live to. So how is it that we are free from the law and yet bound? Well, that's only half the analogy, isn't it? Look at verse 4 of chapter 7. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. And then this is the key. So that you may belong to another. We didn't just die to the law. No, a new marriage is offered. It's not just that we are freed from the old spouse. No, 
a brand new spouse is brought. There are two marriages in this passage. Freed from the law and married to Christ. There's a covenant relationship, a parallel to marriage that happens between us and Christ. And like I said, marriage is a very constraining relationship. This person shapes how you work, how much money you have, who your in-laws are. What you can do, what you're going to do on your Friday nights. You have to care for this person, for rich or for poor, in sickness and health. Till death do you part. We could just keep adding on all of those other things. That's always the bounds of marriage. Skinny and fat. Good looking and ugly. Doesn't matter. You're bound. So if marriage is so constraining, if marriage has all these boundaries, let me ask you a serious question. Is marriage slavery? Now we can make a joke here. But I'm asking seriously, is marriage slavery? Let me phrase it this way. Some of you, if you have a struggling marriage, maybe these questions will help you a little bit. Is it slavery to know that the one you care for will always be there in the morning? Is it slavery to know that the father or mother of your children cannot leave you? Is it slavery to know that you have someone to grow old with? Is it slavery to know that your search for companionship is over? See, friends, marriage for all of its constraints is an amazing blessing. Here's the difference. Marriage is only slavery if you're not in love. Marriage is only slavery if you're not in love. Because if you're in love, all those constraints only serve to guard, protect, nurture, and build up this core relationship of mutual love and care. And friends, that is the constraint of the gospel. It's love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not that you'll keep my commandments to prove my love. Not that you'll keep my commandments to earn my love. No, if you really love me, You'll live in the constraints of this relationship because that will only protect and cultivate and nurture our love. If the object of our affection is right, none of the commands of God feel needlessly burdensome. That's why Jesus says, Come all you who are weary and heavy laden and take my yoke. You get me. We're in this together. I think this is exactly what Paul has in mind. Chapter 6 Verse 17, he says this, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. It's a changed heart that we are in love with God. God wants us to love and delight in him. And if you've been truly converted, then you see Jesus as beautiful. And obedience just protects that relationship. And brings more joy and happiness. See, merit, gospel is not a cage that binds our body from seeing the wide world. No, it's a wedding vow that binds our hearts to a one true love. Why would we want to walk away from that altar? See, the law stirs up our inner rebellion because it arouses sin. But grace confronts rebellion with a love that will never let go. Friends, that, that's the love of a parent who says to a rebellious child, your rebellion is breaking my heart, but you can always come home. It's the love of a spouse that says, though your eyes and your heart have wandered, I will honor our vows and take you back and love you anyway. It's the love of God who says, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. 
See, love defies rebellion. It doesn't stir it up. God says to us, no matter what you do, I love you. I love you. This is why we live by the Spirit and not the law. The Spirit is a person, the person of God. Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. He's a person in our lives. A love relationship that we have now been given in Christ. It's not a code. It's not a list. But everything that we do to please Him just protects and guards and cultivates that relationship. The Spirit of Christ who seals us. And that seal is stronger than any law could ever be. But because we love Him, it's not a constraint. How is it that the Christian can be far more bound than we ever were before and yet feel free? It's the freedom of being in love. Friends, as we come to the end of this series, we've looked at so many different aspects of the cross, but I think this is the perfect place to end. What is the glory of the cross? Friends, the great love of God is put on display. The love of God is made known. We see in the cross that he will go to extravagant ends to pour out his own son to show his love. He who did not spare his own son, doesn't that prove his love? Doesn't that show his care? We look, at the heart of, we look at the heart of the cross, we see the very heart of God, a God who loved enough to do that. And friends, as we fight sin, as we seek freedom, may it be the freedom of love to know that we do all of this to please a loving Heavenly Father who deeply cares for us. We look at the cross, we see the heart of God. Will we not love him back? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for you are the God of love. Father, I pray that you would impress on our hearts the truth of your love for us, that a desire to cultivate and protect and cherish that relationship would overwhelm the temptation of sin, that we would be reminded that this is far more beautiful than anything the world has to offer, anything the devil could tempt us with. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You have offered us the beautiful commitment of a covenant that will never be rescinded. I pray that that would overwhelm our flesh and rebellion and we would feel the freedom of being in love. Father, we praise you and thank you. We say it all in Jesus' name. Amen.